Hello and welcome to Maester Monthly, your favorite pseudo-monthly podcast hosted by the moderators of the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit. Before we begin, this podcast is spoilers extended, which means material from the Winds of Winter and Game of Thrones TV show is fair game. You have been warned. My name is Matt, also known as Joe Magician. And my name is Eliana, also known as Glass Table Girl. And my name is Isabel, also known as Mighty Isabel. And on this episode, we'll be talking about the upcoming Fire and Blood book coming out in just a few days, probably at this point. Yeah, just a few days. In just hours. Hours away. <laughs> we, we, we think. Well, probably. I who mean, knows? Everything is technically hours away, you know? Wow. That is a perspective. Whoa. Everything is technically seconds away. It's just how many. You are blowing my mind. So that means the Winds of Winter is only hours away. Yes, the Winds of Winter is only hours away. No, stop. <laughs> How many? Well, I mean, it's going to be released at the same time as Fire and Blood. I mean, we all know it. So that'll be a cool day tomorrow. When, yeah, for you know, sure. We get both of them at the same time and the fandom explodes. But anyway, let's start with our introduction question. Which character in Fire and Blood are you the most excited to learn about? Eliana, go. Okay. Unexpectedly, I'm gonna say Aegon the Third. Whoa! Because we know so little about him, right? He, I I think that we know that he was morose. He had like a traumatic childhood, obviously, and we learn a lot about how Aegon the Third came to be in power and like all the things around him. But who, who is Aegon the Third really? And we still might never find out. Like, the book is going to be written from the quote unquote perspective of a maester years after Aegon III's rule, so it could still be very much not who he was and shrouded in, in lots of rumors, etc. But I, Aegon III is the one that I'm going to say. That's a hot take. I don't think anybody saw the Dragon Bane coming as the question, as the answer to that question. But yeah, I mean, I, I would say he's one of the Targaryen kings I know the least about. He's just kind of like the emo one, as far as... He's a poor, sad boy, and he needs a hug. That's true. And his mom, he can't get it from his mom because she was eaten by a dragon. Exactly. Rip Aegon and Rhaenyra. That's good. Good answer, Eliana. Isabel, what are you looking forward to the most? I am looking forward to learning about Grand Maester Orwile, who is, he's one of the historians that Gildane's historic, historical account of the Targaryens is based on. He was aligned with the Greens during the Dance of the Dragons, and... Uh, bad things happened to him and he ended up in jail, in prison. And in a So Spake Martin from 2015, we are told that he sat in a prison cell uncertain if he was going to end up executed or not and wanting to lay down his side of the story to try and paint himself in the best possible light. Um, and so Elio Garcia says that it's going to be one of the many highlights of Fire and Blood. And I think the whole idea of a of one of these historians with his axe to grind and his agenda is that's going to be a big fun reveal and it's going to bring a lot to the universe why am i not surprised your answer is a maester who's a historian it's <laughs> <laughs> about right that came out of nowhere always want to be surprising always surprising about history and maurice drew on in his Yu-Gi-Oh! yes interest yes that too <laughs> so for mine it's i don't think this can be a surprise to anybody my character i'm most excited to learn about is septon barth nice because Septon Barth is right about everything, it appears, and a large part of Targaryen history after his death appears to have been suppressing everything that he knew and everything that he wrote to the point that his books are scattered all over Westeros. And I'm especially excited to figure out the the nature of the three heads of the dragon, basically, of Jaehaerys, Alysanne, and Barth, and where he fits in, because we've gotten a taste of Alysanne and Jaehaerys already and how they fit together. But where does Barth fit into that power structure? Are you telling me that they were having threesomes with Barth? I'm not saying Ooh. no, but I am. No. <laughs> <laughs> no I'm talking about um, as as the three main forces ruling the kingdom while Jaehaerys was on the throne. It appears there was a strong relationship of power between the three of them. <laughs> but wait, Septas and Septons are celibate, aren't they? Well, you never know. Maybe we'll find out. Maesters are supposed to be celibate. But yeah, uh... Especially with his with Barth's knowledge of the children of the forest, he figures out his journey to Castle Black, his interest in the dragons, all this other 
really cool information that really hits my my sweet spot in a song of ice and fire so definitely barth Barth's a good one i am also excited about anything we find out about barth especially where he's from yeah some people think he's from the north which is interesting huh some people think he's from white harbor and just think but by the time our listeners hear this conversation they may know the answer they may it may be an excerpt as we're talking Coming out in some random newspaper around the world. Hello, reader of the future. <laughs> if you've already heard the answer where Barth is from, please put it in the comments so we can look like fools. Thank you very much. <laughs> in our defense, we are just lowly beings from the past. Hours in the past. Hours, seconds, seconds <laughs> in the past. <laughs> uh. So speaking of hours and seconds, uh, let's talk about some of the reviews and comments we got in the since the last episode came out. I will read aloud a comment by Chelsea B. Mays from iTunes. Chelsea B. Mays says, I'm so angry. I didn't find this podcast sooner. This has saved me at work, and I'm going to be devastated when I run out of episodes to binge. Such wonderful and intelligent discussions. Wow, is that really how we come yeah, off? Apparently. I'm obsessed with Aswath, but unfortunately, I have zero friends who share the same passion. Therefore, this is the most fun I've had listening to a podcast in a while. Oh, That sounds more on brand. Yeah, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> I like how Chelsea put in like almost like like uh, directions and emphasis so that Eliana could act it out. Just so perfectly, like reading lines. I'm just glad I've saved someone at work, you know? Chelsea B. Mays is currently employed, and it's really thanks to us. Wow. <laughs> You're welcome, Chelsea B. Mays. It's another mind blow in this episode. We're the podcast that keeps on giving. Your paycheck, <laughs> that's us. That's on That's on me. An intelligent, wonderful discussion. <laughs> Ooh. I'm not sure about that one, but yeah, definitely keeping you employed. That's a high bar, you guys. We've got a ways to go. I want to be the podcaster that Chelsea B. Mays thinks I am. I think you are. Yeah. Uh, next one from Adriana from YouTube. Another pleasant morning surprise. I always like these kind of comments just because it's like with our pseudo monthly style, we kind of sneak up on people and it's like a wonderful surprise when our podcast shows up in their feed. And there are some of them are like that for me in my real in uh with the podcasts I listen to, I'm like, yes, this Ramley showed up today. So, Adriana, I feel you on a deep level with that comment. I enjoy when my morning is saved by a good episode of a podcast. Yeah, me too. That's very relatable. I just, like, think it's funny because on one hand, it speaks to our uh, whimsical nature, <laughs> right? That when we come out. That's a way of saying it. <laughs> uh, but also, I guess in theory, we could tell people when a new episode is on the way. But we could also just let it be a pleasant morning surprise. For Adriana, yeah. Yeah, we're doing it for Adriana, to be honest. We have a lot to live up to from these last two comments. I know. <laughs> we're saving mornings and jobs. Yeah, and the next the, the next comment. Oof. Really sets the bar high. Really sets it high. Okay, this is from Thunderclap. And it's, wow, Walda is amazing. Well-versed in heraldry, well-traveled, and... Was that Monty Python reference as for dolphins right out? And I think that was a Monty Python right Probably. reference. Probably. Yeah. That's her Walda, yes. And yes, Walda is amazing. Yes. She crushed that episode. That is 100% agree on that. Just so people know, that was the previous episode, episode 15 slash cast, I think it was titled, with Isabel, mm -hmm. Walda, and Bookshelf. And they really just crushed it. Uh, I was listening to it back afterwards and... Walda's discussion of heraldry was indeed amazing. If you haven't listened, go back and make sure you do. Not only was it amazing, like, if you haven't listened to it, it's very informative about how heraldry actually worked in the real world. And turns out Aswaf has it all wrong. <laughs> but it's it's very informative, and you should take a listen to it because she's great. She was supposed to join us tonight, but unfortunately we had technical issues. So, yes. Also something else that we definitely have to live up to. Making up for her absence on tonight's cast. It's a lot of pressure on this episode. No. We should depressure it a little bit. <laughs> Go get some fire and blood. Set some things on fire. Slash some 
Bleeding. Where are you going with this one? No. I I just no. I just spent the week bleeding. So what if we don't? I don't need to bleed anymore. That's a that's a insight into Eliana's personal life. I don't think any of us saw coming, but that's that's there. That's good. The main topic this week, we do not have the subreddit highlights in the way you're used to. We did a different thing. Our own Mighty Isabel here with us today was leading a whole bunch of threads on the different chapters and topic coming out in Fire and Blood. And for us today, she has curated them down to a finely honed list of only the best things that the fandom is looking forward to in Fire and Blood. So, Isabel, take it away. Thanks, Matt. Like Matt said, I put up a bunch of threads for the last couple of months about the various characters and themes that we're expecting to see in Fire and Blood. And I went and found threads that had been posted since the beginning of the subreddit and and linked those up so that you could see what people had been saying for the last six years about Viserys I or about Visenya. And there was some good discussion in the comments where people brought up new theories and updated these these topics. And also, I'm hoping that if you've got the book in front of you and you were kind of wondering where you'd seen a, a theory before, I'm hoping maybe those threads will be a way for you to sort of shortcut to finding that old theory post that you remember seeing somewhere. And I might have been able to find it and link it up or it might have gotten talked about in the comments so that you can go find it and see whether we were right when we were talking about something three years ago and whether the book, you know, confirms something for us or debunks something or raises new questions we didn't even think of. So this finely honed curated list is just a couple of interesting topics that I and the other mods are excited about finding out about when we have the books in our hands, the books that you probably have in your hand right now. So it's true. It's one of the more exciting times in the Song of Ice and Fire than uh, fandom, the culling of theories that's about to happen. So many people are about oh, to yeah. scream out as all their theories go up in fire and blood. Huh? See what I did there? Oh, that's what it's called. But only death can pay for life. So I feel like as many theories die out with all the other information that's going to come in from fire and blood, we're going to see the birth of a whole new generation theories that's really deep i think that's exactly right oh, yeah, you're on a roll this episode you're like blown minds left and right i'm going to say the reason why is because i am drinking the johnny white walker scotch Ooh. do you have to say it with that voice when you say the name i do i do <laughs> you know someone said to me recently who was it i think m toodles sent me a dm recently i was like i appreciate how you're always drinking on your <laughs> maester podcast it's like shit is that what people think about me i mean like one one thing they think about you anyway <laughs> so let's go to the first one i think uh i am really excited about this one this is this is a theory about dragonstone that uh mithras stoneborn brought up in the dragonstone let's discuss thread and they said what if there's hidden magically hidden sections in the castle of dragonstone these sections could only be accessed by people with Targaryen blood doing specific rites. This would explain why Loras can't find anything at Dragonstone. And the idea that Dragonstone is a soft place with like magical portals in it or it's bigger on the inside. Uh, I think that's a very cool idea. When I saw the table of contents for Fire and Blood, I kind of I gave up on some of my hopes of getting lots of really cool magic stuff about Dragonstone. But the idea that there are soft places in on Westeros and on Planetos and that Dragonstone could be one of them would be just very cool. Yeah, it just kind of makes me think of Diagon Alley. <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. That's exactly like what this idea is. And I think that there is merit in the idea that the Black Gate exists. Yeah. Well... I have a few things to say about this. Uh, first of all, I love the idea that Dragonstone's a TARDIS. Yeah, that would make me so happy. <laughs> <laughs> if it if it was just like what like a Type Forty something TARDIS just sitting there. But anyway, wow. Um, well, Dragonstone itself, just like geologically, it's a volcanic hotspot, so it is just sort of symbolically a meeting of the two worlds, the upper world and the underworld, kind of thing. Mm -hmm like a, a hell and earth kind of place so that makes a lot of sense and there's also 
just all the obsidian and the like the talk that there's dragon eggs everywhere but nobody can find these things like i believe uh, at some point stannis said that they basically combed it looking for dragon eggs and have found nothing his entire time he was there so it's a it's a cool idea especially with just how amazing the valyrians were with all the things they can make like with the demon roads that are even centuries later still like arrows straight nothing's happening to them or they're the amazing pictures that we get from valyria if there's something like that hidden in dragonstone like the sort of the idea of like what does it look like maybe from like a dragon's eyes or what does it look like from like a true targaryen's eyes that's kind of a cool idea oh yeah very cool like an altered perception yeah it's kind of situation at the location i mean it wouldn't even have to be dragonstone itself like it could be there's all kinds of places that could be time space rifty thing happening that we might find out about in the book that's true yeah i think the one thing that i have qualms with or think is different is that the black gate doesn't respond to the idea of someone's blood so much as it does an intent right it responds to someone saying a vow and i think that's very different from Mm. the idea that only people of certain blood have access to certain things because i think that the story this is a personal harp of mine right like i think that the story does lead us to think that yes certain bloodlines or whatever are magical but there is the extent to which like yeah that veers a little close to ideas that could justify eugenics which is what the targaryens were doing true and i think that the story should be criticizing ideas that like certain bloodlines confer power and it it already does to an extent in a thematic way of the idea that being born to x family means that you are afforded social power and i'm like do we really need to give the magical power on top of that (laughs) yeah yeah i guess according to george a very good point eliana and they already i mean the story does do that with like things like dragons and wolves right but the wolves are certainly a boon but the dragons don't necessarily make life easier in many ways the dragons are a complicating factor, right? Oh yeah, for yeah. sure. People that acquire dragons all of a sudden want to become conquerors who probably wouldn't before. That kind of thing. More more curse than blessing. Yeah. Like how people can't resist the, the draw of power. I don't know, maybe in a black gateway, maybe there's much like the story of Varys and his unfortunate eunuching where they threw that into the fire and the fire answered back. Maybe there's something like that in Dragonstone. Like maybe you can talk to the volcano or something like that. Ooh. Something weird like that. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm fine with it being like a right, you know, like. Yeah. Varys has committed, I don't know, some blood thing. And like, he's totally the kind of person who's down to do that as shown by the little birds. Mm. And it was done to him. Like, that's the world he's in. And, And I like, and Eliana, I also like the idea of, gates or portals opening on an oath right yeah like the ritual side of it or or making a commitment or making a A statement of intent a a solemn commitment or something yeah 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 that they're magic words like it's it's an open sesame yes exactly or like pulling the right book in the adams family library in order to get to the vault the adams family i love the adams family uh one thing that i also really like about this post and just it's sort of a thematic thing it's that Dragonstone, as we know it in A Song of Ice and Fire, is it is dreary and Stannis hates it. So you kind of think of it the same way. But it was the seat of Aegon the Conqueror for most of his reign. And I think Aenys, I think only Maegor really left permanently for King's Landing. And it was the seat of power for the next in line for the throne for generations. And the Targaryens had been there 130 years before the conquest. Yeah. It was the splendiferous seat. It would be cool if there was a way that that was true in a way that Stannis can't see, basically. Maybe part of why he can't see it is just because he thinks that it was given to him out of spite from Robert. And honestly, actually, a lot of the art of Dragonstone presents it as dreary, but that's something that I liked that the show did in the way that they presented Dragonstone. Like, for Stannis, he felt like it was a prison, almost, in some ways, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. He never used those words, but he felt like it was a a, a consolation. But when Daenerys comes back in season seven, like, Dragonstone doesn't look sad. It is, it is lit, and not, like, in the cool, like, hip, (laughs) young slang way. Hashtag lit. Like, it is literally full of light. We see it in the sun, and, like, she inhabits it, and she 
embraces it as her home and invites people in. And then we see so much sunlight throughout Dragonstone as opposed to when Stannis was there. True. That's a great, great point. So let's move on to the next one. It is by user Lairit. Was Visenya the brains of the conquest? And this is from one of Isabel's fine threads. Lairit said, from reading The World of Ice and Fire, it could be deduced with reasonable ease that Aegon was more of a figurehead than a king. The brains of the whole conquest was Visenya. The only reason we talk of Aegon's conquest and not Visenya's conquest is because society of the time was too patriarchal and it is dangerous to enforce a great change on the lands you conquer. This is an excellent, excellent thing and something I'm looking forward to especially. And it's sort of a running theme that we've seen from the excerpt so far that the Targaryen women are much more important to their monarchy than you would probably guess from the way the histories are written. Like, children could name off the names of all the kings and probably not most of the queens. Very few of the queens are even named or get titles. But as we learn about characters like Visenya, Alysanne, and more, it's very clear they had huge parts to play in the political uh, engine that Targaryens ruled for a couple centuries. And especially from uh, the Sons of the Dragon, I mean, during our unfortunate um, live stream where things got a little, <laughs> got a little uh, fire and bloody. I thought that was uh, great. It, it was, <laughs> towards the end, it got, it got a little off the rails, but that was a, a main thing I talked about in particular, that I thought Visenya came away as the most powerful and important character in a story in a short excerpt that was ostensibly supposed to be about Aenys and Maegor. I'm really looking forward to that kind of theme running through it. I think we're very likely to see that. And just looking at, like, as I've been setting up the threads, I've been linking back to the World of Ice and Fire discussion threads, to the ones that are relevant to the the new threads I'm posting. And then we got the chapter list for Fire and Blood, and you can actually compare the section and chapter list from World of Ice and Fire to the chapter list of Fire and Blood. And in World of Ice and Fire, it's just the list of the names of kings, and it ends up looking like a story about like a line of guys who did stuff, a line of great men or ungreat men or whatever. And the, with, with the Fire and Blood chapter list, you, you get a lot more... Uh, you get a lot more about the the complicated stories around these, you know, there's this throne that somebody sits on, but there's all these other things going on. There's a time of testing. There's Jaehaerys and Alysanne. There's a bunch of sections about the dying of the dragons, about the dance of the dragons and, and the different people in that. And uh, it's just a total, it's a different way of framing the story we're going to get that than, than what we've had since World of Ice and Fire came out with its list of kings. Yeah, for sure. And going back to what Matt was saying about Sons of the Dragon, Sons of the Dragon turns out it was kind of about Aegon, not Aegon, Aenys and Maegor. Yeah. Like, kinda. Kinda. It was really about all of the women. Yeah. And and since this comment is about Visenya, I think there's merit to it because we see that Visenya was in many ways the backbone when Aegon died. And, you know, Rhaenys died, but like the kingdom kept going. And I think that maybe the part of that has to do with Visenya being by Aegon to support him and slash or maybe rule in his set or be that equal ruler next to him, but just isn't written down. We see that she and Rhaenys were ruling in the set of Aegon when uh, that excerpt came out recently. And yeah. also when Visenya died in Sons of the Dragon, everything started going to shit for Maegor. Yeah. And I think that's because Visenya held it all together. Yeah. It really is a credit to her that I think ostensibly the worst Targaryen king, his reign was held together just because she was still around. And actually, it's an odd way that's being pushed forward in Fire and Blood is that you can kind of see the importance of the women in the political structures by like the more they're described as like witches. It's very yeah. strange, but Visenya is described as like almost like a Halloween style witch near the end. She's like making potions and casting spells and curses and things like that. But when you look at what she's actually doing, it's really just an odd recognition of her political power that the men don't know how to deal with. That's definitely true. And it's also, you can even start seeing that reflected in the current A Song of Ice and Fire storyline, where you see that the Windblown are talking about all these rumors about Daenerys and framing her as I'm not going to remember, the one who would bathe in the blood 
right? Oh. The virgins, etc. And oh, uh, Mad Donnell lost them. Oh. No, there's in, a real character. Yeah, in, in, no, in in our real world, oh, there's a legend. About oh, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. Bloody the bloody Baron, bloody Baroness. It always comes back to blood, doesn't it? Oh, here we go. Um, the Countess, yeah, Elizabeth Bathory. Yes, yes, Elizabeth Bathory, and the way that. Yeah, Daenerys, as she rises in power, more of, as you said, this very witchy description is used to describe her. So, in in the in the chapter of The Windblown, uh, Quentin says, you know, the more Quentin heard of Daenerys Targaryen, the more he feared that meeting the Yunkai claimed that she fed her dragons on human flesh and bathed in the blood of virgins to keep her skin smooth and supple. And then later on, they talk about her promiscuity, and that she rode with the Dothraki and grew accustomed to being fucked by stallions, so now no man can fill her. And then later on, they say that she killed her call to make herself Khaleesi. She practices blood sacrifices, lies as easily as she breathes turns against her own on a whim. She's broken truces, tortured envoys. Her father was mad too. It runs in the blood. So... It's it's similar. That's totally Bath Elizabeth Bathory. Where she's doing nothing different from Aegon or Aegon the First, but he's the dragon or the conqueror, and Visenya's a moldy old witch casting spells and Danny's bathing in virgin blood. It's uh, very emblematic of the way the patriarchal structure of Westeros reacts to these kind of powerful women. Yes, it is. Hiss with me, sisters and brothers. So I'm going to throw it out there. Tyana the Tower. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Actual witch. Probably actually doing witching, yes. witchcraft. Actually, really, though. But how much? Like, even like Melisandre, a lot of her witchcrafty stuff is kind of faked. But there was magic. Where she, like, throws powders and weird other stuff to make people think she's witchier than maybe she really is. That kind of thing. I think there's an aspect of that to Tyana. I think there's also, you know, there was magic in the world at that time. <laughs> yeah, she just she was a witch. There's both. <laughs> I mean, you can be a weak witch. You know, you you still a witch, but you're just a uh, less. You're like level one instead of level ten. Who's a level ten witch in A Song of Ice and Fire? The Night Queen. Actually, great answer. Book one, Game of Thrones. Cersei Lannister is a witch. This isn't entirely the thing, but now she does get the same kind of descriptions Danny gets, although some of it's deserved with Cersei. She's some Snow Queen language and yes. imagery. Ice Queen. Yeah, we women. So we're so cold hearted. <laughs> <laughs> Very cold. Speaking of cold women, Elian, why don't you do the uh, next one, which has nothing to do with cold women? Yeah. Speaking of Asenia and Rainies and how they're described, and I think the same thread, maybe, of Fire and Blood is coming that you posted, Mighty Isabel. You have some descriptions, right, of Visenya and Rainies, and one of them is from a So Speak Martin. Like, Visenya is a year or two older than Aegon, Rainies is a year or two younger, and like, they're described as they have silver gold hair, but theirs is worn long. Visenya often braided her hair, bound it up in rings, while Rainies wore hers loose and flowing and then later on they're like Mistenia is both stern and sensual more voluptuous than her sister more passionate but with a dark and unforgiving side Radies, the youngest of the three is slender and graceful playful with a mischievous aspect to her personality that Visenya lacks Rainies is the flirt Visenya the seductress and then like oh my I love this comment from oil bird spelled with a zero to spell the word, word oil. Zoilbird. <laughs> yes, Zoilbird. Says, it's funny how these Visenya and Rainey's descriptions sound like bog-standard wish-fulfillment RPG <laughs> character background fluff out of control. <laughs> and then they they put in a quotation of what this would sound like. like these are my waifu OC, do not steal. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I think that's, that's a surprisingly insightful joke. I mean, they're basically like Final Fantasy characters. <laughs> Kinda. Yeah. <laughs> like if Cloud is Aegon. I like the the response comment to it too by Anakonosis. Which is for real. Women don't describe themselves this way. I give those descriptions five out of five pink masks. <laughs> <laughs> That's the new rating scale. <laughs> so so well done, Oil Bird. We think you're onto something there. Uh they really are though. Theoretically, mm -hmm. you know, his waifu OC, just the waifus of Aegon. That's true. Do we even 
like in your head do you even have a conception of what Aegon looked like yeah he's real hot <laughs> is he do you mean the the, the art from uh, Magali of yeah. the dragon there's the one with like all three of them looking off in the distance and their hair blowing you know the one they're facing off to the left all the way on the right side of the picture mm-hmm. I'm like yeah that one's cool he has a strong jaw I don't know he has a beard who knows when he gets older, a lot older, he looks like Ted Danson, apparently. So is Magor, weirdly. According to A World of Ice and Fire. Yeah. <laughs> they look like Ted Danson. Everyone, I say this every time, but I'm never going to let it go. Turn to the Dornish section of The World of Ice and Fire and the scene in which Aegon is reading the letter about Rhaenys' death. He looks like Ted Danson. No one will convince me otherwise. Is Aegon the one who looks like Chris Hemsworth? No, that's Rhaegar. That's Ra- oh, that's Rhaegar. That guy. Yeah. Generic Targaryen guy. It depends on the king. We get a lot of, I think, physical description, right, of Baylor Breakspear. Yeah. Yes. And we do a Viserys. I think we get quite a bit of Viserys, if I'm not mistaken. Viserys the first? No, like our Viserys in the storyline. I could be wrong. Um, Shithead Viserys. Well, other shithead Viserys. And... As we saw in the excerpt that was released this week, there's a lot about Visenya and Rainey's. Well, I don't know if it's a lot because it was an excerpt, so I don't know what's going to actually come out. But there was information about Visenya and Rainey's actually ruling the Seven Kingdoms and not just if they are dark and sensual and passionate. <laughs> Draw them like this. Which should be fair. Like, I maybe he did for. Aegon and the other ones because there's a pretty consistent look. Yeah. Kinda. I wonder if there was like I can make another Final Fantasy reference. I wonder if there was like do you remember the part from Final Fantasy 7 where Cloud has to like pick which girl he's gonna take on the date in the casino? Well basically you had to pick which girl you were gonna take on a date in the casino and then ended up being a crazy love triangle. I wonder if I'm hoping that's what it was like for Aegon and his sisters just like Final Fantasy, bad plot drama. I mean, Sephiroth is basically looks like a Targaryen. This is true. He may as well be. He even gets the one. He gets the one wing angel, and sometimes the Targaryens have wings. For our next one. Oh, can uh, I talk about this next one? Yes, Isabel, you can talk about this really insightful, well written post. It. It is a very interesting theory that I am really excited about going through Fire and Blood looking for more evidence for. And the title of the thread is Aegon's Epic Loot, and it's by some joker named Joe Magician. (gasps) Oh, oh, oh! It's me! Oh, sorry! Oh, my God. Oh, sorry, Matt. Oh. What I really like about this theory, which is a theory that Fagon in in our series is is going to going to be imbued with the trappings of the Targaryen dynasty of old with their regalia. And I'm sorry, Matt, you should talk about this, but I think it's such a cool theory. Okay. So this theory is I was thinking uh, quite a lot at the time because there's a sister post to this about um, how Cersei's going to see Rhaegar everywhere. And then this sort of came out of that, or I'm not sure. One of them, one of them came out of the other. But the basic idea is that um, in this kind of society, and especially in Targaryen history, having the right icons of power were sometimes more important than maybe being the right person. Like, Magor made the claim that because he has Balerion and Blackfire, therefore he's the better, he should be king over Aenys, even though Aenys is the rightful king by, this, by I think, Aegon's succession or whatever. So, this is much more of a theory post than an analysis, but I talk about how it's almost for certain that Illyrio somehow acquired the sword Blackfire from a cut line about him speaking Valyrian, I think. And also the the crown of Aegon the Conqueror has gone missing, but it went missing in Dorne because he was ambushed and the crown was never returned. So if there's going to be some kind of marriage pact between Aryan and Fagon, the gift of the Conqueror's crown would be an amazing way to seal it and something that Varys and Fagon would be extremely interested in acquiring. And then there's actually the fact that nobody knows what happened to Rhaegar's armor. 
after he died, his body was incinerated, as most Targaryens are, but you'd expect with how much hate Robert Baratheon has for Rhaegar that his armor would be displayed somewhere so he can look at it, so he can remember killing Rhaegar, and he doesn't have it. So it's out there somewhere. And we actually see Fagan's armor is very, very reminiscent of Rhaegar. And that's sort of Varys's pitch to Westeros, that this is Rhaegar come again, even though he probably really isn't. Yeah, for sure. And it's a lot of, as you say, those it's trappings of power. It's trappings of power. And it's, it's called out explicitly in Renly's ghost charge, basically, on King's Landing, where Garland Tyrell wore Renly's armor and it inspired them to win, even though it was not actually, obviously, Renly. Just the mere fact that this, the symbol showed up was enough to rally. And that's sort of what Varys is probably counting on with all the ways he is desperately trying to throw Targaryen trappings on Aegon. Yeah, there's definitely, I think, a lot of that weaving of that narrative of him being the true heir. A really good essay on this, I would say, is by something like a lawyer over in the Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog called The Spider and the Dragon. And it talks about not like the specific the specific symbols, but that idea of how Varys is creating this sort of political narrative around Aegon. And I really like this theory because of how it hooks into a theme that George is obviously very interested in with connecting spectacle and display to power, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Cersei is one of our main windows on that, but it comes up over and over again and... The idea that Varys and Illyrio are competent enough political actors and information brokers up to all kinds of shenanigans anyway, the idea that they could bring all this together to prop up their perfect prince, I think it fits a lot of the themes, whether or not it comes to pass as actual canon. It is a rich speculation. For sure. And I wanted to throw over to another thread that that a more recent thread that picks up some of this idea, which is by Schmed Stark, and it's the secret of square cut rubies. And he picks up a similar idea where he walks through the times we see red rubies in the books, and the red ruby is a sign of deception. Uh, there's one on Rattleshirt's wrist. There's one on Stannis's fake Lightbringer, uh, and there's red there's big red square cut rubies in Aegon the First's crown mm. right so if that crown ended up on Fagon it would be that that red ruby uh sign again of a of a glamour of something fake of a mummer's dragon that's a that's a very good insight from Smed Stark they're actually yeah they got the top comment on my post too so i think they went from mine to making their own and expanded it in a very interesting way it's such a common theme in these targaryen family conflicts that it's almost always the one that looks the part versus the one that actually has the part yeah like uh daron and damon blackfire like um there's this quote here from the sworn swords sir eustace says daron was spinely and round of shoulder with a little belly that wobbled when he walked damon stood straight and proud and his stomach was flat and hard as an oaken shield and he could fight with an axe or lance or flail. He was as good as any knight I ever saw. With a sword, he was the warrior himself. When Prince Damon had black, had black fire in his hand, there was not a man to equal him. Not Ulrich Dane with Dawn, no, nor even the dragon knight with Dark Sister. And that's really what we're talking about. The, the person that most resembles the perfect Targaryen. And how that seems to rally quite a lot of supporters. That's even really the argument behind the Dance of the Dragons, where Rhaenyra is declared the heir. And then basically the Greens argument is like, but she can't be because Aegon's better. Yeah. And how how the idea of the perfect Targaryen is constructed. And it's constructed in each generation with whatever, whatever materials you've got lying around, slap it on there and make yourself a monarch. Also... Speaking of what we were talking about earlier in terms of physical descriptions of Targaryen men, <laughs> just want to point out this is a very specific, oh, in my yeah. opinion, description that mm-hmm. uh, Damon Damon Blackfire had a he had a stomach like an oaken shield. So Eustace had a crush a little bit, eh? I don't know if he had a crush, but like that's a that's a specific descriptor, <laughs> you know, like 
That's something that you definitely use to characterize sexy men. Yes. So maybe George is a little more equal than we were saying. You know what? Good point, Eliana. I was maybe unfair. You didn't say washboard, though. No, although um, this came up with my discussion with uh, Indie Geek when we were talking about Ned and Robert. And this uh, from the last episode of Maester Monthly, where you guys were talking about my joke about <laughs> Ned and the Magic Pixie yeah. Dream Girl. The descriptions Ned has of Robert are very similar to this loving of the physical form of the of uh, a young man from an unlikely source. You know, as I say in The Good Place, it's 2018. Why can't they be bi, you know? Why aren't more guys bi? It's 2018. <laughs> what year is it in Westeros when... When the story 2018. Up... It's 2018. It's 2018. 2018 in Westeros. All right. 2018. 2018 <laughs> yes. in Westeros. That's canon. That's canon right there. This is not in the fact in the medieval era, but before Victorian ideas of sexuality came along, I'm going to throw out there. I think more guys might have been bi. Yeah. Sexuality was a little differently defined. Anyway. Have you read any Shakespeare at all? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Shakespeare and the Fair Youth Sonnets, y'all. Uh, well, yeah. Wow. Or Achilles and Patroclus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's move on to the next one. Isabella, I think you actually have this one again. You're on a roll tonight. I'm on a fire and blood. Let's discuss roll. So this is a theme that I was seeing in various threads. And it's about the sources that the maesters and the, the septons who, who are writing these histories are drawing on. They're always talking about Septon Barth, and they're always talking about mushroom. Like the maesters are always casting aspersions on on Septon Barth and on mushroom, and and then but then there's this kind of received wisdom in the fandom that well Septon Barth is usually right, you know, he's usually right about how dragons work, and he's he's usually right about the, the magic stuff. And with mushroom, there's also you know he's he's mushroom actually tends to know what's going on behind the doors in the Red Keep. Even if we don't really want to know, he 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 tends to know, and he seems like he's ready to tell us. But you know, and he has his agenda, and I'm really excited about learning more about Barth and Mushrooms, like where they're actually coming from, and what they actually know anything about, and where you have to take their words with a grain of salt, or maybe where you need the the maesters are being too salty about them, and and we should trust them over the maesters. Yeah, I think that this ties into something that I've been seeing as I've been rereading Sansa chapters. And Sir Dantos, as you all know, goes from being a knight and then is relegated to becoming a fool and therefore ends up spending a lot of time with Moonboy. And Dantos tells Sansa, he's like, everyone's just telling me everything. Like, everyone's just doing shit in front of me. And he's also like, oh, I'd forgotten dude, Moonboy right. Moon knows so much stuff. He's like, Moonboy's like, always talking about like these things or I don't know if he was saying that Moonboy was talking about things but like he thinks that Moonboy might be a spy and it's because Mushroom I don't know if people expected him to go out there and be the unidentified and later identified TMZ source of (laughs) Westeros but people were willing to I think be vulnerable in front of their fools yeah it's true in this in those uh, courts where everybody's a threat and everybody's jockeying for power around you. I mean, so I guess you just got to let things out sometimes. And maybe these fools were like stand-ins for like pseudo-therapists or something. It's like, finally, I could get this off my chest to somebody that won't say anything. It's like, well, until Mushroom, who apparently told everything to the maesters. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Mushroom is a performer, right? How much of it is performance and him being this comedian, being a little salacious? How much of it is truth? What is your opinion, Isabel? I'm taking the approach of I, I'm looking forward to finding out more. Well, I don't think we're going to get like a solid answer. We're going to come away going, oh, wow, Mushroom always tells the truth. I, I think that George is interested in playing with, you know, how much of the legend will you believe if I print it? <laughs> that is a favorite game of his. A lot of times the characters that know the most in the Song of Ice and Fire are the ones with the most question marks about them. I th- Just sort of like a general theme, like, I, old Nan is a perfect example of this where exactly. she's just like, oh, she's telling scary stories to Bran, but that as we learn more and more, it's like, was she wrong about everything? I think she just got all the history right. How did this happen? 
She's the one who's right about everything. Her and Barth and maybe Mushroom. Who knows? It's it's an interesting sort of meta commentary on history that George is making where like you, you usually have to decide in real historical works like who to believe based on like doing research. But because it's an author making it up, it yeah. sort of adds another layer of like, is he just messing with us? And like you're invited to believe what you want to believe. This is actually something um, that our fellow mod Hamfast brought up the other day, and he was talking about the King Killer Chronicles and like the War mm-hmm. of the Librarians. Yeah, just a little background. It's it's a it's a plot in that that various factions of knowledge basically fight against each other to get the right narrative, and you can see that even in like these extraneous works that George is producing that they don't even agree with each other, and he's writing them. <laughs> Our next highlight from the threads is from Let's Discuss the Magic of Dragons and user J.M. Sturm proposes a theory I don't think I've ever seen before, and it's an intriguing one, talking about that perhaps each kind of dragon or each like family of dragon was tied specifically through maybe some kind of blood magic to the 40 families of the Freehold. Because the Targaryen dragons seem to be relatively loyal to stick to sticking with them, with maybe the exception of Nettles. Although it's who knows, maybe she actually has a dragon seed. Maybe she really did just bribe them with sheep. It could go either way on that one. But in particular, there's three dragons that were very very hard to tame, and one of them that never was. There was Cannibal. Sheep Stealer and Grey Ghost. They lived on Dragonstone and they didn't obey anybody. They would kill other dragons when they showed up. They were like, these were the wild dragons of the world. And it's something that doesn't really get thought of a lot because they're usually seen as like tools, like Balerion, the tool of the Conqueror who used to bring Westeros to its knees and burn the Valentine fleet. And then there's just these three dragons just like screwing off like smog, just being like, eh, I don't have to listen to you humans. And it's kind of an interesting idea that he's pulling into it. Like, maybe these these dragons are the descendants of dragons that escaped the doom. And how that bloodline magic stuff might have worked. I think it's an interesting theory, at least. I mean, it, it goes back to to a theme we were talking about earlier in the episode. About if, if bloodlines open portals, what if it's odes instead? And there's that here. Like, it's really appealing, the idea that dragon riding is something that more than just Targaryen lineage people can get into. But another thing that's very interesting about this theory is is that Fire and Blood is going to give us a lot more information about individual dragons and individual Targaryens and their relationships. We might know a lot more about how this might work already once the book is in our hands. I'd also just call into question the fact that it's not actually correct to say that Nettles was reportedly a dragon spawn. They actually never say that in The Princess and the Queen. Oh, that's a fan theory, right? Yeah. yeah, it is um, something that people surmise, but it's never explicitly stated. It's not even necessarily within the world, within the context of the story that people suspected that Nettles was a dragon seed. That's mm-hmm. not that's not said at all. No, it's like circular. It's like true. It's like she rode the dragon, so she must be Targaryen, and she's Targaryen, so she was able to ride the dragon. Like no, no, wait, maybe it doesn't work like that. Yeah, it's it's kind of a weird test that. Who knows how many of the Targaryens were actually Targaryens, the dragon seeds that showed up, because mm-hmm. if they're using the dragon... Yeah, it's like you're saying, it's circular. It, does, it doesn't make much sense. Although they did include that in the show, with uh, Drogon being super friendly to Jon. Yeah, they did. The The show went all in on the bloodline magic thing. The blood detector dragon thing. Yes. There's also another point that I didn't really realize about these wild dragons, as they're known, that were on Dragonstone. So Balerion lived to be about 200 years old, but Cannibal was there on Dragonstone before the Targaryens arrived. And he and he died um, at around 129 AC, meaning Cannibal was about 250 years old, according to, uh, to the post here. I haven't fact check these myself but it also maybe feeds into the idea that well what we know that the lives the targaryens gave these dragons was not a nice one they could have lived maybe much longer if they didn't have to fight each other and destroy kingdoms 
They could be half a millennium old if you left them alone for a while. Yeah. Yeah, they're like goldfish. Go and have dialogue with the great turtle. Or lobsters, maybe. But lobsters eventually die, I guess. Do you guys want to hear about lobsters? Sure. Tell us a lot. (laughs) Go. Lobsters don't technically die from, like, old age or their cells, like, Mm. being super old. They just keep molting. And the thing is, they just get to a point where their shells get like so big and heavy that the molting process like exhausts them and then they die out of like exhaustion or something from trying to molt from being like too swole so yeah so they're like they're like hard-shelled regenerating trolls kind of wow until like they're just like i'm too tired to do this in the middle of a molting thing so turtles are kind of like you said with the great and powerful turtle they get to adulthood and then Basically, just don't age anymore. Yeah. Uh, I think it's the turtle of Darwin. I think his turtle is still alive, or it was until very recently. It's this weird thing with these very, very old animals where, like, for whatever reason, death by aging isn't really written into their code in the way that uh, mammals are. Dragons may be the same way. Oh, that's really interesting. Maybe we'll get more information about old dragons. And actually, some of them escaped at the end of the dance. Like, uh, I believe Sheep Stealer just sort of... That was Nettles' dragon, right? Yeah. And nobody knows what happened to it. It could nope. still be out there. Could, could be. Could be. It could have gone to Ashai if there are indeed still dragons there. True. I like the... I, I don't know how they would have died, but there's uh, that enormous dragon skull uh, close to Vase Tolero in the mm-hmm. Red Waste. I could mm-hmm. be Sheep Stealer. It could be, a, it could be any of to be honest, but whatever. Actually, while we're on the subject, why don't we move to the next one, which has a lot to do with that. Yeah. It does. I really liked this theory. This is a thread from 2014, and it's about the World of Ice and Fire. The thread title is Burned Men Worshipped Nettles? Question mark? I think it's a really fun theory. Bob Beckay, Bobetsk. Um, no, no, do your best. Uh, Bob uh, <laughs> points out that in the mountain clans of the Vale, the clan of the Burned Men worshipped a fire witch in the mountains. Uh, sometime after the Dance of the Dragons, they sent their boys to bring her gifts and risk the flames of the dragon she commanded to prove their manhood. And so this user uh, theorized that the fire witch could be Nettles, who was last seen flying sheep stealer into the morning mists of the Bay of Crabs. So she was flying toward the Vale, and what if she took refuge in the mountains, as the burned men legend might suggest? And the gifts could have been sheep for sheep stealer to eat. So what if we find out that that Nettles is was actually chilling with the burned men for the rest of her life with her dragon? And and that that was this like coda to the Dance of the Dragons. It's a really interesting idea. And I mean, just based on that, it makes a lot of sense. Like, where did this dragon come from? Where did this fire witch come from? Yeah. yeah, she's a perfect candidate for that. There's not too many explicitly missing dragons. I think it's basically just Sheep Stealer <laughs> at this point Yeah. among the, among the uh, dragons. And it would actually be like a very smart move to hide yourself in the... The mountains of the Vale, nobody goes there. Yeah. Because why would you? Because the clans are vicious. And you could very easily just set yourself up as like a pseudo goddess, which may, if this is true, may tell us about how maybe the Valyrians interacted with the rest of the world. They set themselves up as gods and got people to worship them. Okay. Well, when you've got a dragon. Yeah, it's easy to. It's it's a temptation. It's something that I thought was interesting that came up in the Duncan Egg novellas Egg is talking about how yeah his sisters are courting him and Dunk is like that's weird <laughs> but they always talk about how the Targaryens even after they didn't have their dragons were positioned as being like gods and therefore not subject to the same laws that the rest of Westeros had to follow mm-hmm. and again even without dragons many royals presented themselves this way in real history like they're like yeah you know i'm the pharaoh because i'm descended from the line of guts duh (laughs) that's just how it was but also i just want to talk about how i was really struck by the fact that the princess and the queen came out four years ago and that i uploaded this thread 
four years ago mm. when it came out. I do enjoy these things because you, you just randomly see these old threads. It's like, oh, I did like this one. Like that happened to me the other day with a uh, Crow Foods daughter. She was showing me uh, an old theory she wrote. And I'm like, oh, I saw this like three years ago. That's pretty cool. The part about the Targaryens setting themselves up as gods it actually reminded me of another thread by Birds. The user compares Targaryens and other characters from the series to characters in I, Claudius, about the um, Julio-Claudian empire, uh, the Julio-Claudian line of Roman emperors, right? And I mean, and this is the line of emperors that included Caligula, who actually thought he was a god, right? And it's it's obvious that George is familiar with that book and with those characters and um, the thread lines up different characters. And I recommend reading the thread. It's really good. I wanted to say one other thing about the Nettles thread. I mean, this has come up in a, in in several of the Let's Discuss Fire and Blood threads is that maybe some of these questions, maybe we're hoping not to get answers to them. And maybe it's fun to look for Nettles anywhere on the map she could turn up with her dragon and instead of getting an answer to the question of oh yeah she's in a cave with the burned men and that's and that's canon and it's done like what if it's not done what if, what if this ends up being one of the cool questions that we we don't get an answer to i personally like those i it's a definitely a personal preference more than yeah more than it's necessarily like good storytelling it's just me like i like the idea of not knowing really what happened to her and it's just like oh nettles is just out there in the world living her best life maybe probably <laughs> uh, there's another character that um has the same sort of thing happen to him at the end of the dance of the dragons the rogue prince uh stabs aemon one eye and they go down together with their dragons they find aemon one eye still chained to his dragon and they find damon's dragon whatever dragon he was riding they find that one but damon himself is never found the fallout of the dance is very interesting in that way as it's almost like there was like a mass migration at the end of it if everyone was just like okay i'm done with war get out maybe with nettles maybe with damon there's actually some speculation that damon and nettles because they were uh, supposedly lovers ran off together in a like the dark knight uh rises style end sequence where they're sitting at a restaurant drinking espresso and having a good time and then alfred walks up and it's like damon nettles what are you doing here and there's a there's a speculation thread from three months ago by uh, Flo Castle. What if Damon escaped on Cannibal? True. Whoa. It could be. Could have been. That could be what happened. And he's on Skagos. Actually, isn't there talk of a dragon on Skagos? There's one of everything on Skagos. I think that I think that's where people think Cannibal went. There's unicorns on Skagos. I think I agree with Eliana, though, just in general, that, like, I do hope at the end of Fire and Blood that we don't know the answers to every question, because then what would there be left to talk about? Some questions are better just for Maester Monthly discussions. <laughs> I think also unanswered questions, again, personal preference, makes things feel more realistic to me. I don't give you something to ask George at some signing sometime. I don't know, there are so many things to ask. Like, what are the other hours in the day that aren't the hour of the eel or the hour of the ghost or of the wolf? No one cares but me. What are the names of the months? Do they have months? No, no. Fan fiction writers really want to know. It's important. I need to know all the different hours. Yes. Days of the week, too. How many How many days are in a Westerosi week? Do they have days of the week? I, that's a great question. I assume it's seven because they count in years, don't they? They count in normal years, but it would make sense for it to be seven, one day for each of the seven. But what about before the seven came to Westeros? They have days? Oh, what is the calendar of the old gods compared to the calendar of the faith? Ooh, good question. So how do the children keep track of time? Probably moons. Moons. Do calendars mean anything in a, in a world that has long winters? Like, I mean, George has answered this before, right? That they measure a year by a revolution, by the patterns of the stars, etc. And like, while there are patterns, etc., to be fair, there are areas of our world that don't have four seasons and mm -hmm. they don't have several different seasons. But they still count a year. 
Yes, because yeah. they're following things like the moon or the stars. I imagine the children and the first men went by the moon. The moon was very important to them. That would make sense. Also, considering that the time that Bran spends in Blood Raven's cave is measured through the phases of the moon. And I don't think that that's necessarily oh, yeah. a world-building thing, but it is, of course, a way that one can use to tell time. Actually, that's just very random, randomly it makes me wonder, how did they know how long the long night was? If they couldn't see the stars, presumably because of the endless winter, and they couldn't see the moon. It just felt real long, okay? That <laughs> it's like Mark Lone notches. It was long AF. That was that was it. Instead of AC and BC, it was AF. Do do we know from um from World of Ice and Fire where the long winters fall during the Targaryen dynasty? It didn't even occur to me that that like are we going to get any long winters in Fire and Blood? Yes, there there definitely were long winters during Targaryen dynasties. Uh, one of them was, I think it was right around the time of the the plague. The year of the false spring. Right, right. Yeah. A false spring means there was a winter. A long winter. And that, and that's living memory to, to the Dunkin' Egg era, right? Yes. There was, there was another one during that other plague, during the Dunkin' Egg era, the one where Blood Raven had to burn everything. I think there was a winter during that time. I wonder if there was a winter during during the reign of Jaehaerys. I wonder how they handled it. Probably. There has to It must have been. What what would what would Septon Barth do? There had to have been one at least less than fifth every fifteen years because they talk about how Rob, Stark and them, etc., are oh, you're right. sweet summer you're right. children. Well actually we don't know that Rob and John haven't lived through a winter, but we at least know that Bran has never lived through a winter, so that gives us, like, what, seven years in, at the very least since the last winter. Yeah. I don't think Sansa's seen one, so then that gives us eleven. Has Tyrion seen one? Yes, Tyrion has. Short ones, so. though. Short winters. Yeah. But still, like, short in terms of they were, like, a year or two long. Yeah, so, like... That's pretty long. Ned and a lot of the adults have seen a winter. They don't really talk about it. No. Um, I think because thematically the winter for everyone was really Robert's Rebellion in their hearts. But Ooh. Uh, yeah, 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 I don't know if there's been one for Rob and John, but we know that they occur at least less than every 11 years because people keep talking about how this is an exceptionally long summer. Yeah, the long summer is ending. They're more yeah. frequent than in 11 year time spans. But you, dear listener, you probably have the book in your <gasps> hand right now and know when the long winters wow. fell during the first hundred and. 30 years of the Targaryen dynasty. And you can probably drop a comment in our in in our threads here and you can look it up. And tell us how you think the Targaryens did handling that in those long winters. That's true. I do have a vague recollection that there were times in Targaryen history where wars were basically averted because they're like, well winter is about to set in. So this is there definitely was one instance I can remember where somebody launched a war during a winter thinking nobody would be prepared it didn't go didn't go super well so that is our discussion on fire and blood well we'll be all three of us will be there we'll be able to see the germ himself have fire and blood in our hot little hands and everyone else you can pick up your fire and blood copies on november 20th hopefully you already pre-ordered and have it on your way to yourself because this is going to be a lit book. It's going to be fire. Anyway, um, <laughs> that's it for us today. You can find us on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and YouTube. All our episodes are archived at our WordPress, maestermonthly.wordpress.com. We are on social media at maestermonthly on Facebook and Twitter, where you can and should and legally must smash that mf and like button if you'd like to suggest an intro question or a subreddit highlight feel free to pm the mod team on the subreddit reddit.com slash asswaf you can just spell that one out reddit.com slash r slash asswaf and if you've got the time or inclination please go to itunes and review the podcast that is one of the primary ways that helps people find us and if you leave an awesome comment it'll get read probably on the next maester monthly we always read all the YouTube comments and iTunes reviews. Whew. So, I have been Matt, also known as Joe Magician. 
And I have been Eliana, also known as Glass Table Girl. And I have been Isabel, also known as Mighty Isabel. Thank you all for listening. Look forward to seeing you all on the subreddit as we discuss the many, many revelations and awesome things coming out of Fire and Blood, and presumably wins a winner coming out November 20th. <laughs> no. It's coming out on November 20th. Wins a winner. It's confirmed. It's happening. Ew. <laughs>